Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander, and we are Knee Deep in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 206, recorded on September the 2nd, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. This episode is a 40-ish minute long interview with Simon Whiteley of Advancing Analytics. We met up at Data Scotland and we managed to get a few minutes of his time. Enjoy. And we're joined now by Mr. Simon Whiteley. Simon, welcome to the show. Hi there. You didn't do it. Oh, hello, Spark fans. Ah, oh, much, yes. Much better. <laughs> so we are in Glasgow. Is that the correct pronunciation, by the way? It's Glasgow. Yeah. What? Glasgow. No, they're all going to hate me. It's Glasgow. Don't ever say that to a Scottish person. Okay. No. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna come after me. Ah. Yes, oh, we're no. in Glasgow. Potato <laughs> Scotland. Indeed yes. we are. So we've all done our respective sessions. Yes. And Haney is already on vacation. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so we've, Boo. Des- <laughs> we've decided that I'll be asking the question. Simon will be answering and, and Haney will be nodding. Yes. So mm-hmm. She's not nodding. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we've talked about getting you on the show for a while. Mm -hmm. Yes. And finally, we managed to corner you, essentially. It's easier in person. It is. So much. And and just getting to talk to each other in person is just so much worth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely beats. I mean, YouTube's fine. And and, and podcasting online is fun. Well, no no one talks back on YouTube. So I just. Yeah, that's nice, though. Slightly insane, just ranting onto a camera. Mm. Yeah. So I, I used to do a session called Talking to Myself because that's mm-hmm. pretty much what I've been doing yeah. the last couple mm-hmm. of years. But uh, finally getting you on, I would love to talk about well, Delta and Databricks and stuff. You're, you're very firmly in the camp Databricks as opposed to Synapse, if you will. Oh, oh, oh. very firmly is a strong word. Should oh. we get Simon to introduce himself before we head down that rabbit hole? Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. So for, I'm not for, entirely on vacation yet. <laughs> that's I've got point. a brain cell still. Good. On. So, Simon, <laughs> who are you and what do you do and why? Oh, why? Ooh. Okay, so I'm, I'm Simon. Hello. Um, yeah, so I used to be a BI person, right? I got into oh. data from doing visualizations and passionate about making dashboards and doing all that cool stuff. I, mean, I started oh. where everyone starts cranking the uh, handle on an access report to spit out <laughs> hundreds of reports that took the entirety of a Monday. And I eventually escaped. But I spent a lot of time building warehouses, doing Kimball, doing star schemes, doing all that stuff. Um, I then got into, into the cloud. You know, we're building like, essentially we're trying to pull apart a SQL server and putting SSRS on that box and IS on that box and plugging what so we can turn things off when we're not using it. We start to get some cloud scale by paying for five servers at once. And that didn't really make much sense, <laughs> but it was a starting point. Um, then got into the slightly more, what, what can we do that just runs, like, I just want to pay for the stuff I use. And there's this marvelous cool, uh, tool called Data Lake Analytics, which used uSQL, which uh, we had some <laughs> sadly, yeah, yeah, some sadly <laughs> ill-fated projects, because then obviously Microsoft pulled the plug on that poor unfortunate <laughs> tool. And then I went into a thing called Spark. Now, Spark has revolutionized everything that uh, we do, because essentially it's, it's, all, it's all the same. We're still taking data from somewhere, we're shaping it, and we're presenting it in a form that the business can get, make quicker decisions, make better decisions, do more advanced decisions, predict some things, automate some stuff. But 
it can do it better, it can do it faster, it can do it with less code, it can do it, we can apply software engineering practices. I used to, mm. I shared a house with uh, a, a guy who's now a .NET MVP, I shared a house with lots of software engineers, mm. and they constantly berated me for, why aren't you yeah. testing things? Why don't, why don't you use libraries? Where you, where's your code management? Where's your linting? Where's all the, all the engineering? Why don't you do it? And back then I, called my, I was calling myself an ETL developer and I was like, uh. well, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> and that kind of data engineering has been a thing that's kind of evolved as we've adopted some slightly more sophisticated advanced tools. As we've adopted things where you can write Python, you can write Scala, you can use a programming language. Um, and then you have to learn all these things, you have to build all these things into it. So I've been on this journey over the past six years or so, kind of using Spark, of just learning all we can from software engineering, applying it to all the good stuff we know about data and data management and Kimball and star schemas and all that stuff hasn't changed. Someone asked me yesterday, has it gone away? I'm like, no, it's absolutely very much firmly here to stay. But we're just doing it in a different place. We're applying different things to it. That's a really long introduction. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so essentially, I'm a data engineer. I've gone on a journey <laughs> from building warehouses into building, essentially building software products that produce data. And it's a very different way of thinking about things. Uh, but these days I spend my life talking about Spark, teaching people how to build better lakes, because lakes used to be terrible, and now lakes are really good. But no, 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 lakes can be really good. Yes. But you're still yes. quite able to shoot yourself in the foot. Absolutely. And that's the thing. As with most things. True. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can do things badly. Yes. Even without trying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's it. So I consult, I help companies. I run a company called Advancing Analytics. Um, I work with Microsoft as a Microsoft MVP, so I talk to them lots about Synapse and what's going on there. I work with Databricks as a Databricks beacon, which there's, there's 13 in the world, Databricks beacons, and no one's Ooh. ever heard of any of us or what we do. Uh, but that's a thing. So I work with the Databricks product team talking about what they're doing. So I get the nice viewpoint from both sides of going, well, this is what Synapse is going, this is what Microsoft are working on, this is what Databricks are working on. So what should we be focusing on and kind of what, how should we be doing things? And this is our experience as people who use Delta, use Databricks, use Spark day in, day out, mm. even when I shouldn't be, even when it's the weekend. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's kind of what we do. Cool. So going back to, well, so Databricks is essentially Spark as a service, yeah. correct? Yeah. And there, you can always run Spark inside of Synapse as well. Mm -hmm. So the first and the most basic question is, how do you choose which offering to use? Yeah. Because they're the same, but they're not the same. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the answer is going to be, well, it depends. But yeah. where, were you, where would you start with that conversation? Um, so this, there's, two, there's two arguments behind it, really. So firstly, Spark is an open source service. So the guys who invented Spark, they started a little company called Databricks. Uh, and Databricks is still the company that contributes like 80% of the code that goes into the actual open source Spark engine comes from Databricks. So yeah, it's open source, but it's heavily pushed, heavily driven by Databricks behind it. Um, so because of that, the Databricks engine tends to be a little bit further ahead. They can be more agile because they're not reacting to the engine suddenly changing. They're pushing and building the engine. So because of that, you've got this, like, the core Spark engine, which is the same anywhere you are, there is like a base point of vanilla Spark. And then Databricks have got their own extra engine that they build on top. So when, you use, when you're in Databricks and you start a cluster, you choose the Databricks runtime, and that is a Spark version. So it'll say Spark 3.2, 3.3, that's the vanilla Spark engine. And then there's a Databricks runtime. And that's like the version of all the other gubbins that they put around it, the extra features, the premium features, the stuff they charge you more for. Uh, Synapse, because Synapse have to use the open source version of it, 
So that always means kind of they're just a little bit, a little bit further behind, but they're also wrapping it in their own Microsoft runtime. So you'll tend to see kind of a, a Spark version get released, and then maybe six months down the line, you'll see that appear into Synapse with their own wrappings around it because they're kind of playing catch up because Databricks have been doing it for a lot longer, honestly. So if you're going pure Spark, I want the absolute most latest version of Spark, all the optimizations, all the features, it's gonna be in Databricks before it's in Synapse, honestly. So for me as a, as a Spark developer, someone building things, if someone says, I only care about Spark, that is the only thing I care about, where should I be? I'm probably gonna say Databricks. Mm. Um, but if someone's saying, actually, I wanna do a little bit of Spark and a little bit of T-SQL, and I've got like, lots of people who have a Microsoft BI, and they wanna keep things simple, then that's gonna make sense to use Synapse Spark to do those little bits of augmentation, little things, because it simplifies the architecture. You're not having to deploy Databricks and configure Databricks and then deploy Synapse and configure Synapse. So the argument for which one should you use, it tends to be how much of it, how much of Spark are you actually using? Using a little bit of Spark or using a lot of Spark? Uh, and then how much do you care about the performance optimizations and the, your ability to get in there and really, really tweak it? Mm. Um, now there is a big difference in terms of the two engines in that Synapse Spark pools, the way it processes data is a little bit weird. So they built it in a way that uh, to avoid data exfiltration, you can never have two jobs running on the same executor. So it means you can't parallelize properly. So you always end up going, well, this notebook's using those two machines. And if there's any bits of those machines that aren't being used, that's just wasted. Whereas on a data risk cluster, you go, this is my cluster, throw a load of notebooks and it will just patch, it will be make sure it uses all the CPUs at any one time. So the, your cluster utilization is a little bit better in Databricks, but if you want to make sure absolutely there is no way there's any other code running on your thing, it's better to do that in Synapse. Yeah. But for me personally, the, that rarely comes up. Yeah. Whereas the, I want it cheaper and I want it faster tends to come up. And that, that brings us to cost. Yeah. Databricks, it, it's always funny to talk to people who don't really know either of the products. Yeah. Because what I always hear is, well, Databricks, that's going to be so expensive. You're going to be paying through the nose. You should definitely use Synapse. Is it that easy? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> As usual. No. No. <laughs> um, so, so Synapse, the, the price per minute of using a Spark VM is cheaper in Synapse. They've deliberately, because it's there, it's their cloud platform, it's their product, they can go, we're going to make it cheaper, we're going to undercut. Uh, Databricks, you're paying the flat VM cost of that VM in Azure, plus a Databricks license on top of it. So flat out, I'm using a v, like three VMs for 10 minutes, Synapse is cheaper. But if you think about the scaling, and actually I can do more on those three machines for the 10 minutes than I can on a Synapse, then maybe I'm actually going to have to leave my uh, Synapse pools turned on for longer. Yeah. So it's kind of, if you optimize it, maybe you can make Databricks cheaper, but it depends on how heavily optimized and how, how much you're using that, how efficiently you're using those things. Um, the scaling, the, the how, how well it can scale up and down and kind of so rather than just having a cluster deployed, but actually I want the cluster to react and go, ah, oh, I'm really busy, add on 10 workers, shut down 10 workers, add on three workers, shut down and just flex. You know, when you talk about um, planning for compute, you have like this graph of like how much, how busy your machines are. And the tighter you can tie the amount of compute you're paying for, I realize I'm just drawing you a picture of my hands that no one can hear. Yeah. Uh, the tighter you tie <laughs> that, um, the compute you're paying for to the compute you need, the cheaper it's going to be, the more effective it is. Yeah. Which is why, you know, the on-prem argument of in the middle of the night, it's not doing anything, you're wasting cash. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that when you're in Azure because you're paying per minute. Yeah. So if you can get it to scale and scale and down, scale up and scale down, then it's more effective. But you need to have thought about that and build that into your processes yes. so it's slightly harder to do that. 
Mm. Realize that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it really drives home the point that it's not easy. No. Um, and that's also kind of the, the flip side of, of anything in the cloud. It, it's not as easy as buying something and yeah. having it in your basement standing and doing nothing during yeah. the night. Mm -hmm. So everything comes with a, a price. Mm -hmm. Nothing is free by definition. So you just have to roll with it. Uh, you had a session today about the Delta Lake House. Yes. So before we dive into the the thing that is Lake House, we're going to be spending some time there. Let's talk about Delta. Yeah. So Delta used to be open source and closed source. Yes. Or open source with some secret sauce on. I think of it as a freemium and premium. <laughs> you know, you can get like the free version of the game or you can get the version of the game that actually has the bit you want to play. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's kind of the way of doing it. But now everything is, is it open source or is it going to be open sourced? Uh, da -da. <laughs> so uh, as part of Delta Lake 2.0, they said, here's all the features that we currently have that is going into the open source roadmap. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they've fully finally released everything. I don't know how much of that roadmap has finished, honestly. I've not, I've not had a look in a week or two. Um, but yeah, absolutely. As of Delta 2.0, it is all the features, all the things that were the secret source that you only got if using the Databricks flavor mm -hmm. is in open source Delta. So does that mean that they will keep open sourcing the whole shebang? Or that's, that's what they've committed to. They have? Yeah. Okay, cool. So going forward, everything is supposed to be open source. Because honestly, they got flack. So there's, there's, a, there's a storage format war going on. Don't know if you know, there's a secret war going on. And it's Iceberg, it's Hoodie, it's Delta. And there's people going, well, actually, you know, there's three open source file formats. And then people going, well, no, but yours isn't open source because you're keeping back yeah. certain parts of yours. You're not really open source. You're pretending to be, you're giving lip service to open source, but you're not doing it properly. That's kind of the argument coming from your snowflakes who are like pointing at Databricks and going, <laughs> why would we use Delta? Because it's, it's yours. Mm. And Databricks' response to that is, all right, let's make it all open source. Mm -hmm. So, the, I mean, and, and that, that is good, right? You know, kind of big, big companies, they've made Spark open source, they've made MLflow open source, they've made Delta open source. That's great, kind of uh, sharing this stuff with the world. They don't have to. Um, and, you know, you tend to see companies start off with that ethos, and then they start making billions, and you're like, yeah, no, we're just going to keep, we're going to keep making money. Let's, let's stop doing that. And the yeah. fact that they're still open sourcing and they're still pushing it is great. Yeah. I'm all for open competition and share that stuff and get more people actually contributing it and, and working with it. It's great. For sure. So Delta is the secret sauce, essentially the missing link to be able to do in a data lake, which is file-based, what we've been doing to databases since time immemorial. Yeah. So why? Why? Oh. And how does it change? Yeah. So it's because of what the lakes are good at. So lakes are really, really, really good at... It's big data, right? Four Vs of big data. They're good at volume. They're good at dealing with petabytes of data or, or terabytes or gigabytes. They're, they're good at dealing effectively, parallelizing over vast volumes of data. They're really good at that. Uh, they're good at variety. So you can query JSON and not have to use horrendous for JSON paths <laughs> SQL. You can just write a SQL query uh, that over something that is coming from nested JSON and just traverse down the nodes by going, you know, node one dot node two dot node three and go down nested children. And it's really easy and you can do it in SQL. Just making accessibility for geospatial data for doing 
for doing ML over images and kind of stuff. We did a satellite recognition, kind of boundary boxes over houses, a load of interesting stuff you can do. All those different use cases you get from a variety of data sources. You can do in a lake really easily. Databases ain't so good at it. Uh, you can do streaming. So velocity in the 4V, you know, having, being able to just natively stream. Being able to have a single technology that can, you can stream into a delta table. You can stream from a delta table. You can batch write into a delta and then stream from it. You can stream into it and from batch and it's all the same technology. You're not having to go, I'm gonna use my streaming technology over here with one set of languages and one set of operating and one set of scale and my batch one over here. And then I used to build the Lambda architecture, which is a batch architecture and a stream architecture stitched together just in time. I don't need to do that anymore. You know, so those, those kind of the Vs of big data, big data is not just about big, which is why I hate the term big data because it, it makes people think volume and petabytes, mm -hmm. but it's about those various different challenges. And they are all enabled by a lake-based technology. So if I want to do all of those things and maintain all of that stuff, but I still want to have a star schema and goodness, I don't have governance and backups. I don't have a firm structure or evolving structures. I don't have the ability to write a merge statement. All that stuff doesn't natively exist in a lake until you introduce the next generation file formats such as Delta. So why am I doing it? Because I miss all the good stuff of relational databases. Why am I doing it in a lake? Because I don't want to give up all the good bits of a lake. It's best of both worlds. I want to have them all together. I want to have my cake and eat it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> it, 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 it does. So um, a lot of, I find that a lot of customers that look into a data lake house, they do so because they, they think this is the new hot thing. But the question is, if you have only relational data and you have a reasonably small amount, say up to one, two terabytes, there is no need for streaming and you want to have this data presented through Power BI. Is a data lake house always going to be so the, the solution? Or is it, again, we're back to it depends. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's in it depends. But it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird it depends, because it depends what you already have. So there is a, there's a barrier to entry. There's a technical development barrier to entry to starting to use Lakehouse currently, because it's a maturing technology. Not everything works out of the box. Some things you need to build. You need to have you built out some kind of function to do this, some, some, some kind of optimization to do that. It's not, you don't have a lot of the tools which is just drag and drop a few boxes, hit go, and it'll build Lakehouse for you. It tends to be, I'm going to build some scripts that are generic that I can use to do it. So the upfront cost of acquiring those skills, of learning PySpark or Scala or R, whichever way you go, Python, um, <laughs> of building out those scripts and kind of the DevOps yeah. and managing it and compiling your Python wheels and deploying them, it's a huge amount of work. But I've already done that work. So for me, I'm like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I'll absolutely use it because mm. I've already put that investment of time in. So if I work with clients and they go, should we do it? I'm like, it'll cost this amount of money. We've shortcut a load of the additional work, but do you have... Do you have the team that can support it? Yeah. Are you going to be able to look after it kind of, you know, when we've left? Do you, do you want to? Essentially, it's kind of, if, they were ne if the client was never, ever going to do any data science, if they were never going to have any of the use cases for data, if they're never going to query an API and have to deal with that data, then yeah, it's quite a large investment yeah. in terms of kind of tech skills and complexity to try and get there. I've never met a client that was like, you know what, we are never going to do any data science yep. and we're never going to have any different types of data. We know what we are and we're going to stick here. <laughs> you know, maybe, although I do have selection bias, maybe those people just don't come and talk to me. <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> no, and that, that's a good thing. And 
Sliding over to your side of the fence, Haney, uh, the DevOpsy side. Yeah. How I'm, I'm kind of getting the feeling that DevOps is easier through Spark and, and Lake House technology than it is through classical SQL. Yeah, yeah. I reckon so. Want yeah, to talk I think about so too. That a bit? Yeah. At least for me, it seems like the like I'm not so deep into the data science side, but the part I've been working with, it seems like it's more natively supported than the SQL side. Like for the SQL things, we have tools that then can take care of it. And, you know, in SQL, we need to handle schema changes, etc. There's those kinds of issues do not mm -hmm. come so much on the data lake side. No, yeah, no, yeah. it's true. I mean, I guess one of the, the big differences in terms of uh, how, how you think about DevOps when we're dealing with a, with a Spark-based system is you have separation of storage and compute, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, so the, the place where you deploy all your logic to isn't necessarily the same place as you deploy all your data to. And so you have some slight flexibility, you have agility of that. But then on top of that, you've also got separation of code and compute. Yeah. So you can write a script and then say, run that script on that big thing, run that script on that small thing, run that script on that other thing. And it's all natively um, parameterizable. Yeah. So you can build things that are much more generic, build things that are not having to get in there and then just edit it during deployment to kind of just <laughs> jimmy in some credentials. Um, you can build things that are just, wherever I deploy this, it will run in the realms environment. A bit like we used to do with SSIS package like environments. Same things, right? Um, but I won't say that it's it's super easy and inherently supported everywhere. We've yeah. had to build a load of Python scripts to call the API and kind of you know deploy wheels and kind of manage stuff, and you still need to build those scripts. Um, you know, so Terraform have recently kind of uh, come out with the the Databricks kind of Terraform provider, and that that does a load of stuff. But then you need to build Terraform, you need to build like, YAML, you need to understand how all that works. It's it's not as natively straightforward. Yeah, I heard Terraform, so I got excited. I, <laughs> I, I know. You've, I didn't know if that was excitement or terror. <laughs> it was excitement. She is a bit weird, but she's yeah. our weirdo, and she really likes Terraform. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, gone. But you, you touched on using a, a big cluster for this, so you, a small cluster for mm. this. The cool thing today is the serverless, the idea of serverless, yeah. and that's where I see a lot of people really look at, at Synapse. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see serverless spark, you think, anytime soon? I mean, yes. Yes, we are. Uh, so Databricks have currently got uh, public preview, but it's the, the Databricks way of doing public preview where they announce it and we can talk about it, but you're not allowed to have it. <laughs> um, so you can speak to Databricks and say, can I get serverless, please? And it's Data Databricks serverless SQL. And the way Databricks SQL works is it's, it's a SQL environment and you can only write SQL in there and it has like a slightly better SQL IntelliSense and does all that kind of stuff. And it runs on what they have uh, they made the mad decision of calling it a SQL data warehouse. Ah. So you spin, up, you spin up a SQL warehouse um, and currently the way it works is you spin up a, it's a Spark cluster. It's a Spark cluster that they've just given the name of a SQL warehouse, but it is just, it is just Spark. It's a certain type of Spark cluster. It's using a certain type of Azure VM. Um, and that's the, the current SQL environment. So Databricks Serverless SQL is the same thing. And it's going to be running on Spark and it's using SQL Spark. But the VMs are all living off somewhere else in a Databricks run control plane. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That is something that is currently out now to be able to go and do just for the SQL side of things. Um, there's another side where they're using the same tech to do uh, machine learning, real-time scoring model hosting. Mm -hmm. So if you have like an ML model and you need a web service, 
so people can kind of just do real-time scoring rather than have to have a, a spark, a single node spark plus just sat there on all day. It's the, I just want to spin it up when I need it. So we, are, we already are seeing it. They are, they are there. Um, will we see full Python, Scala, full engine supported? I, I can only assume so if they bother to plug it in for SQL, they might plug it in for everything else, but I don't know. But I would assume so, because lots of people are going, you know what, serverless is good. Can we just get everything yeah. serverless? And, and serverless is good. And, and one of the, the, the flip sides here is Delta supports, as you said, streaming. Mm. But that means Spark structured streaming, meaning you need to keep the thing on 24-7, essentially. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, absolutely. If you want it to be real time, it needs to be turned on permanently. Uh, and you can use auto-scaling and things, and so it can be like at a low hum for like most of the day, and then it'll scale itself up and scale itself down and react as to when it gets busy. So th there's ways of making that slightly more cost-effective, but you still have a Spark cluster sat there it's costing you lots of money. Um, but one of, the, one of the architectures that we use quite a lot is using um, Spark structured streaming, but with an available now trigger. And that uses streaming, and basically it, it initializes, it starts up, it goes, what has happened since I last ran? brings it all over, updates the checkpoint, and then turns off. Cool. And so instead of having to, the number of times in my life I've built an ETL framework that has, I've got some stitching going, I've read up to this point, I've read up to this point, I'm doing it out, you know, watermarking, the high watermark, mm -hmm. or I'm kind of doing date matching, so I read, go and read the file that lives in a folder that is 2022, it's like 01, and I've built so many of those. Um, but now we can use streaming to go, anything that's happened since you last ran, and it'll go, suck it in, and then stop. So weirdly, I do a lot of batch streaming. <laughs> <laughs> that is a strange concept. <laughs> it, it is. Is yeah. that available out of the box? Or yeah, that's just Spark. Yeah. Most, yeah. most interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you, it used to be trigger once, and trigger once just runs one big Spark micro batch to catch up. But if that's really big, it's still tr it's trying to stream over a huge spike of data. It's not that efficient. Available now is a new thing. Available now. Um, <laughs> that basically <laughs> spins until it catches up. So it's yeah. just like, just get up to speed. And it'll just do, might do three or four little sp streaming micro batches and then go, I'm up to speed. I'm now going to stop. And then my cluster turns off and then I save money. Is this Databricks only or is this in Spark as in Synapse Spark as well? Oh, available <laughs> now. Oh, that's a good question. Trigger once is definitely available. That is vanilla Spark. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember if available now is a Databricks thing or if that is in the vanilla Spark engine. Don't I'm know. sure we're going to find out. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What I was interested in that for people coming from the SQL side of world, they always think about star schemas and things mm. like that for warehouses. So how does that really work in this Spark world where we are based on a lake? Yeah. So, so it's, it's new. I think that's the best way of saying it. Because <laughs> um, Spark, I mean, before Spark 3.0, so Spark 2.4 and above. Spark 3 came in around, I think it came in around 2020. So we're talking about in the last couple of years. Um, so Spark used to be really bad at joins. It used to be particularly bad at doing things. And so part of that is just the query optimizer about how it approaches it. Um, part of it is it, it didn't adapt. So it'd, make, it'd go, right, I'm going to query it this way. And it'd start reading the data. And even if the data was drastically different to what it expected, it would go, well, I've started, so I'll finish. And so it was like, it would do massively inefficient joins. It would do, it would try and broadcast data when there was far more data that could fit onto the, uh, the server. It, was, it would do some silly things. Um, and they fixed it. 
So they put a thing called adaptive query execution, which starts and then checks the plan and makes a new plan if the plan's wrong and does a few smart things throughout the uh, thing. There's also a thing called uh, DPP, dynamic partition pruning, which is, so like if, uh, in the old days, if I had a fact table and I have a big old fact table that's partitioned by a date or month or year, and I joined it to a date dimension and I filtered my date dimension, that wouldn't partition prune the fact table. It would read the entire fact and then filter it down in memory which is stupid. Now they've put DPP in and it will automatically do that. So it will pass the filter context across. It will automatically do partition pruning. But they're the kind of things that meant before they came in, people would go, ah, joins are bad. I'm gonna make a big wide reporting table. So people coming from big data, people who aren't necessarily thinking about enterprise data warehouses and they're not coming from a data modeling background, traditionally big data tools did big wide reporting tables. And you see that everywhere, and you see people recommending it, and you see people still going, no, no, if you're using Spark, get rid of joins, do a big wide reporting table. But part of people trying to build the lake house, them, them trying to say, no, you can do data warehousing on Spark, has been this massive focus to say, let's fix it. Yeah. Let's make it so joins work. Let's make it so people can build star schemas and they actually perform and they work. Mm -hmm. So the reason it, it's, it's maturing because it didn't used to really be very good. It was inadvisable to do it. And now it's like, yeah, you can do it. They are deliberately putting a ton of work and effort to optimize specifically that. In terms of how you do it, you should write some SQL. I mean, you can- Simple. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You can, you, can, you can write views. So a lot, of the, a lot of the mechanisms that we use is, so you write a set of views, which is this view is defining my dimension, this view is defining my fact table. You can do all of that kind of thing. And then you can write uh, a really generic bit of PySpark that says, materialize the latest cut of that view down onto the lake. So take just today's changes for that dimension, merge it in, build a surrogate key, all of that kind of stuff, make it slowly changing. But you can make that as one generic script and then just say, run that for each of my various different curated model objects. So you can use a little bit of sparky frameworking, a little bit of traditional SQL definitions, jam them both together, and there you go, life is good. It's cool, very cool. For sure. And one of the things that I've, I've heard so many people react to, to Delta being mm. able to do time travel yeah. and instantly going, oh, that is going to give me slowly changing dimensions for yeah. free. And then Simon starts to look a bit uh, distressed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, so the, the way Parquet is immutable. You, you cannot edit the contents of a Parquet file. So the only way Spark knows how to change that, if you want to change some data that's sitting in Parquet, it makes a new copy of all the data that's in that Parquet with the changes applied. And then Delta marks the old file going, don't bother reading that old one, just read the new one. But the amount, all the data that hasn't changed, we've got this extra copy of. We have two copies of every single record where nothing has happened to it. Uh, so there's nothing currently in there that says, I'm gonna just update that. There's no little pointer, you can't go back and edit that file. So if you think about making tons and tons of incremental changes over weeks and months and months, the sheer number of redundant copies of data, your, your data volumes just spiral out of control. So time travel is fantastic for saying, oh, I've just done a major update. I think I did it wrong. I did a delete and I missed off the where clause. I've just deleted all of my data. I can time travel back and I can restore previous versions. It's a transactional backup. You can use it for slowly changing, but you can only ever connect to a single temporal version of it. So it's not like you can say, for this fact record, go to that temporal version, for this fact record, go to that temporal. You have to say, fact table, join to the dimension, 
of that specific date version, which isn't how slowly changing works anyway. But even if it did work like that, you'd be spending insane amounts of money on the extra storage costs. So it's not for slowly changing. And the way we do slowly changing is the same way we normally do. You just have a start date and an end date, slap it yeah. on the end of the thing, manage it via a merge statement. Um, some of the database things they're putting in, they've got a thing called Delta Live Tables, which is their, their like free low-code framework, although Databricks' version of low-code involves writing lots of code. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that has uh, an apply change uh, function, which is just writing a merge statement for you. And in that, you can say, I'd like it to be SED Type 2. And it just automatically manages that as an SED Type 2, so that's really cool. But again, that just does it. It's, it is just doing it the same way we always do, putting something on the end of the data, saying yeah. this is the point that this data applies to. And that's it. Is that also Databricks only, or is that... Delta something? Live Tables is Databricks only. Okay. Yeah. So For the foreseeable future or forever? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're, they're planning to open source it. It'd right. be interesting if they did. I don't know how it... how Because it, it's, it's very much part of the, the Databricks portal. Yeah. So I don't uh, know where it would run and how that would work or anything. Uh, so yes, yeah, certainly I just class it as Databricks proprietary in my head. Mm. Um, but all it's doing is writing Spark code for you. Yep. Fair enough. It's just shortcutting some of it abstracting away some of it. So when we have all this amazing stuff in your gorgeous data lake house, mm. how do you serve the darn thing? I mean, do you just direct query the whole thing from Power BI and then you're happy as a clam or how, how would you do it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, you can certainly. Um, but generally, so it depends. It depends. Uh, it depends. My it's always. Is there like a, an air horn for using it depends? Is that, yeah, is that exactly. the naughty word? Um, I mean, so you can use Synapse Serverless to, to serve out Delta. You can use Databricks SQL to serve out Delta. And you'll soon be able to use Databricks SQL Serverless just to make it really confusing about all of these conversations. Um, in none of those would you just go straight for direct query, most likely. So generally, it's, gonna be, it's always going to be faster if you can get it inside an import model in Power BI. It's just going to be faster because it's sat in memory next to, um, next to the engine. Um, but we can use all of the techniques that you, you have available to try and decide when you should go back. So most of the time, the reason people are using these tools is because there's lots of data, more than will fit inside a Power BI model. You know, so quite often over Databricks SQL or, or SQL Server, uh, Synapse Serverless, um, we would say, okay, well, let's, let's make a composite model. Let's make my fact direct query and all my dimensions make those import mode. Let's use aggregations. So if we can serve out 80% of the users hitting it, they're hitting the, the kind of the aggregate level, and it's only when someone wants to drill down that that hits the, hits the Spark cluster and passes it, passes it back. Use hybrid tables to only keep the most relevant year in it. All those tools you have in Power BI tend to carve out and control when it hits direct query. Because direct query, one, either has a cost if you're talking about Synapse Serverless, that's going to just charge you money, or two, has to have a Databricks SQL cluster turned on currently. And it's a parallel system. It's always going back hitting data, pulling data from the lake into the Spark cluster, doing a load of parallel steps, passing it up to the driver to pass back to Power BI. It's not going to be microsecond fast. It's not going to be as fast as people expect a dashboard when you first open it. You want to see it just all filling up and animating, and you want to go, yes, it's working. It's not fast enough through any parallel technology going on top of a lake to do a millisecond serving of data. So it's for, oh, okay, I want to hmm, drill down. Can I go into the low-level data? Can I actually aggregate across billions of rows that's going to go away, do some smart stuff? Can it take a couple of seconds? You know, it's, it's, we're not talking about nightmare material. We're talking about it's just not the millisecond thing that people expect. So carve out 
only do that when you have to, control costs. Obviously, it means your Power BI model is more complex, and you need to get people who actually understand Power BI. And DAX, well, horrible stuff. And you're going to get the Italians. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So th this actually was a great segue to pretty much the, the, the last thing that I want to talk about, and that is, does classic SQL have a future? Or is everything going to go the way of Spark and big data stuff? It depends. You're, you're <laughs> not, you're, and you're not biased, are you? Uh, I, I, I'm massively horrendously biased. Um, <laughs> but if we're talking about analytics, not just any use case you might yes, have. Yes, analytics. You know, so certainly we're not talking about OTP. We're not talking nope. about you know, kind of single record lookups and all that kind nope. of massive thing. Um, but yeah, all, all of the current offerings from Microsoft that are to do with data, you know, so Synapse Serverless or Dedicated aren't using Classic SQL. They're using parallel flavors of Classic yeah. SQL. You know, so Dedicated SQL Pools is, it looks like a Spark cluster. You've got a compute node, you've got control nodes, you've got, it's a parallel architecture. So it's lots it's of things just old. It's old, <laughs> yeah. Um, serverless, so the Polaris engine, if you read how Polaris works, it's break, taking data up, it's breaking it down into these things called data cells. It's scaling them across a load of kind of parallel kind of SQL servers. It's aggregating up, it's returning it. If you read it, it's basically Spark, but it's Spark built on SQL servers. And actually, so across all three of them, dedicated serverless and uh, Spark, how it actually works is really similar. It's, it's a parallel system, that's how parallel systems work. So the flavor of SQL in there is, is they're all, all three are slightly they're parallel flavors of Spark, of SQL. Um, obviously, Spark SQL is slightly different. It's not T-SQL. It's, it's its own beast. Um, you do have anti-standard mode on, so you know, if, you, if you want to divide by zero error to, to throw it back at you, you can have that. Whereas Spark natively wouldn't do that. It would just return nulls, and that's it's confusing. People don't expect that. Um, but yeah, I don't think classic SQL is going anywhere. But I think more and more, for, if you're talking analytics, then you're going to have these parallel flavors of it. Yeah. And the trick is uh, making sure the parallel flavors of it still work at small scale and they're still affordable at small scale. Which yep. I think Synapse Serverless does quite well. And I was just about to say that because that, that line is always moving, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's not the same today that it was a week ago and yeah. two weeks ago. And um, one, one person's small scale is very different to another person's small it scale. It is indeed. And, and that's also where the fact that Azure is not built for small companies. It was designed for Fortune 500. And that is also kind of spilling back to, to us using mm -hmm. reasonable amounts of data. Yeah. So, Haney, do you want to um, add something before going on vacation? No, I'm fine. <laughs> You're already on vacation. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Simon, it's a blast. Um, yes. it, th this was great. I've, I've had um, so many questions answered. Uh, yes. And as always, it spawned another 100 questions. So I'll, <laughs> I'll be getting back to you. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll, we'll see each other going forward and around the world. Sounds good to me. Cool. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at